Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Thank you for having me here. I know you are very busy, but thank you for choosing to be here. And some of you, some of your students who went to Cambodia are here too. We hosted them. Thank you for being here also. Thank you for the, the school for having me here. I know you have worked hard to have me here. And this is my first time in Abu Dhabi. Uh, it's hot like Cambodia. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> this form of the musical uh, that I've just shared with you called Smote. Very ancient Buddhist chanting. And it's being used in ritual uh, ceremony. And it's beautiful. Uh, some people, uh, and, and quite haunting, and some people scared of it. I am sharing this with you, this song with you, because um, in Cambodia right now, we had uh, a very important festival called Pchumben. It's a national festival where um, uh, Cambodians, all Cambodians go to the temple and pray and also uh, remembering and in gratitude to uh, parents, to masters who came before them and giving them life, giving them their knowledge. So this is very special and I uh, want to wish Everybody in Cambodia also happy and safe Chumban there. But in you know, in one point, um, 
At one point, these traditions were almost lost forever. Our music, like the smoke, I just did that for you, almost also lost forever. This kind of tradition uh, will pass on, in Cambodia, will pass on from masters to student, one to one. It, were not, it was not written down. So like from 1975 to 1975, 1975 to 1979, when the Khmer Rouge took over uh, Cambodia, music banned, all traditional and ritual banned, artists killed, and also uh, instruments, all kind of instruments burned and destroyed. I found out that during the Khmer Rouge uh, era, 90% of all the performing artists died. And even before that, I have a million tons of American B-52 fall into my country, Cambodia, and kill so many people. The way we pass on the music from master to student without writing down meant that this art were in danger of being lost forever. If people cannot pass it on, the knowledge dies and the whole culture dies. My family owned an opera company. They run an opera company before the Khmer Rouge. And I remembered uh, my people love music. They love to go to movie. They love dancing. They enjoy it's, 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 it's their soul. It's like the roof of their lives. I remember in a temple when I was, um, I couldn't wait for the monks to allow, I, to allow us to get out of the temple with my little brothers and a little sister. You know, we were in the temple. We were not supposed to, uh, <laughs> to sing love song, but you're supposed to meditate and uh, chant, chanting about the life of the Buddha and the appreciation of his knowledge and all these things. But I couldn't wait to get out of the temple with my little brother and sister. We love ice cream. I, we bought ice cream and we love ice cream and I shared it with my little brother and little sister and movies and also we sing Sinsisamut and Rosirajitir loves ballad, love song from the 60s. It's a rock and roll. Uh, in the 60s, I remember, remember music was everywhere. And, and so sometimes uh, we, my brother and I went to a movie, a Kung Fu movie. And also we went to a movie that, um, um, uh, you know, World War II movies, I would came out, come out with, with my little brother and imitating uh, the shooting. The, those, the guy who's on the motorcycle with the machine guns and also the Kung Fu, you know, like, like Bruce Lee. And, and I hit my brother in the head and blood would come down. And we had fun, you know. And, uh, and, and uh, I heard about the war with American. I heard the word Americans. 
with Vietnam, but I had no idea what war was like. And I heard the artillery far away from uh, my, uh, you know, my house. So I didn't really care at all. And then when the Khmer Rouge took over in 1975, and my good time was a short lived I was supposed to be trained to be an opera star from my father. It didn't happen. And I was just a child then in 1975. I was 12 years old. I was taken, all of a sudden, I was taken by the Khmer Rouge from my family and forced to live with 700 children in a Buddhist temple uh, converted into a killing place. They kill every day systematically kill people two or three times a day. I was forced to watch a lot of killing and I was forced to do many things that I didn't want to do. But I had to do it because I want to live. I didn't realize the price I have to pay later on because I want to live. And the killing was everywhere. I was forced also to push people into the grave when the Khmer Rouge killed them. They make a special act to hit people in the back of the head and they forced us to watch. And they said, here, if you do like them, we're going to kill you too. And the Khmer Rouge would watch us children in the face if we show an emotion like I am doing right now like what you are doing right now, they, they can tell that you sympathize with the, with the victims. They will kill you in instant. So I learned how to shut myself off. I make myself numb to the situation. That's one thing, I ha how I survive. I just want also to share with you, a few years ago, I co-wrote a book with the author, Patricia McCormick. I want to read you an excerpt from the, the book. Another meeting. This time, the high-ranking Khmer Rouge says, who can play music? No one. No one kid make a move. He says there will be a new music troupe, a band to play songs and dancer too. We all still like rocks. I think maybe this is test, new way to find out who is elite, who has education and music lesson or who likes the American imperialists and their singer. They say the band will play for the glory of Anka. Songs and dance to cheer the worker and teach new ideas. Maybe, I think, maybe you play these songs, maybe they feed you a little more. It's, it's like gamble. 
like the shoe game back home. You throw the shoe, you eat better. I raise my hand, just give me one bowl of rice, I think, then you can kill me. They choose six boys, stick boys, so skinny. And they take us to a wooden building where the old, this old man, white hair, white beard, sit on the floor, instruments all around him. The Khmerus say we have to learn these things in five days only. We also have to work in the field, they say. Like the other kid, so the music lesson can only take in at, at night. The old musician, he gives me the kim, a wooden instrument with many strings. Strings you hit with a bamboo stick. You sit on the floor and play. And it gives a beautiful sound like heaven. I hit the right string sometimes and the wrong string sometimes. But always I hit it too hard. Touch it lightly, say the old man like a hummingbird wing. Also, he says, you have talent, work harder. All these Khmeru songs are fast song, fast and happy sounding, and all about revolutionary, revolution, about sacrifices, about hard work, about rice, always rice. Next day, I work in the field all day like others, and then go to the old man. Three days more only, three days to learn these things. I almost cry one time, it's so hard. But the old man, he whispered in, in my ear, learn fast. He said, you don't learn, they're gonna kill you. I work very hard now, even harder. This Kim, it has so many strings, they swim in my eyes, and I play very fast. Hit one string, then another. So fast, I cannot even see my own hands going. So fast, so many times, I know all those songs in heart, in my heart. The other boy, they cannot do it. Next day, the, bo the, next day, the other boys, they don't come to class. The old man, he spent two days two more days teaching me. Then one day he say, now that you learn the song, they're gonna kill me. I tell him, no. The Khmer Rouge need him to learn the band, to lead the band. He just smile, very sad, and tell me all other music teacher already dead. He's maybe the last one. The Khmer Rouge don't want anyone who knows the old song. All those old songs gonna die out, he says. This guy, he saved my life. And now I, he will die and nothing I can do to stop it. The next day he doesn't come. The Khmer Rouge appeared, appear and then say to me, come to the mango grove to see the old man. See what we do to him. I say, I don't want to see it. I don't know how I can say this. You don't say no to the Khmer Rouge. 
It is gamble. If the Khmer Rouge kill me now, they don't have anyone to play their song. I think of a minute what my aunt say about how to survive, bend like a grass. But this time I don't bend. I stand a little tall. They go away and just, I just play the song alone. I think of the old man and I play for him in my mind. Scared, but also in the, in the moment, proud. Another boy come now to the building where I learn music. One more Kim player, one guy who can play a fiddle called a trosao, one guy with a drum, and others with, uh, with instruments like I used to see when my family has an opera. A new music teacher come, too, not so old. But this guy is like walking dead man, very sad, like broken heart. Nothing living in his eyes. We're going to be a band now. The Khmer Rouge tell us no more working in the field. Now we play music all the time. Soon a big meeting is going to happen at the camp. So we have to be ready, ready to play the song perfect. For high ranking Khmer Rouge. And we have one month to learn. We practice music every day now, but never does it sound like a song, more like animals calling out all different time and very slow, not like the old music teacher taught. The kids in the band, they all too tired, too hungry to give attention to the song. And this new music teacher, he looks asleep all the time, like nothing can make him, can wake him, can make him care. Not even this big meeting coming. And I think all this work, learning the Kim, learning the song, and we all will die anyway. Music somehow saved my life. In 1979, the Vietnamese invaded Cambodia and ousted the Khmer Rouge. I was caught like thousands of other children. They took my instruments away and they gave me guns. We were not trained in the battlefield. We, just, we were just trucked out and we on our own. And thousands of children were, were shot by the Vietnamese. And I knew during the time when if I don't take the gun, I saw them pushing the gun into their hands, to the children's hand. And some of the children were scared and cry and refused to take the gun and they shoot them. So when it comes to me, again, I know what to do. And I, have, I, I had to figure out how to use the gun while I was in the battlefields. In the battlefield, I saw many children who became my friends, close friends, shot left and death, left and right from me. And I feel very powerless. 
a lot of times they they were wounded, and I I held them. Blood was all over me, and I can do nothing to help them. I feel powerless. I feel helpless. This particular feeling, I never, ever, ever want to have ever it again. I had decided to uh, to run away in, by myself into the jungle, following monkey for food. Eventually, I. I reached uh, a place they call Thailand, uh, where I met Mr. Pan, Peter Pan, a, a white man. They they call him American. So finally, I met somebody I only heard about Americans. He was literally stepped on me when I was uh, I weigh. They put me on the weighing, and I was weighing thirty pounds. I was close to die. It was my last leg, and I remembered when he stepped on me. I I was in and out of my consciousness, and I remembered he he bent down. And I just clung. I just put my arm, all my all my might. I put my arm around him, around this white cloud. I was flying, and I saw him uh, cry. So the next day he came back, and he was trying among the many children there dying. He was trying to find me. In 1980, I don't know how he did it, but I was—I uh, ended up in New Hampshire, <laughs> somewhere I don't know. Uh, they call America the fall of 1980. The first week, he took me to the mall. And I got arrested there. I thought uh, I put, I keep putting stuff in my pockets because I thought it was free. You know, I, I I saw him putting stuff on the tray and asked me to pull. I was so happy that um, you know, in the camp they told me that everything in America, you know, a lot of money. There's a lot of building. There's a lot of cars, so you don't have to worry. You come, and and I didn't know it. I thought it was free, and I put. Socks. I put things in my pocket, and then I got arrested. When I get out, the, I get out of the mall. The next day, he took me to White Mount Regional High School, where about seven hundred children, student, they all white. I felt I was outnumbered. I was stunned, and they start laughing. They they were stunned. Also at the hallway, seeing. They never. I I I had a feeling that they they never seen me before, uh, and I don't. I was outnumbered, 
I smell the problem already. So not long after that, I was bullied. I was called by, by them monkey. I didn't know the word, but I, because I didn't, uh, my problem had been, I didn't speak the language. I want to tell them something not to make fun of me because in Cambodia, they, I shoot them before they open their mouth. But I couldn't do it there. And it hurts very bad. I want to tell them that it hurts. Stop making fun of me and stop calling me name. I couldn't find a way, I could not find a way to communicate with them. I couldn't connect with them. I felt very isolated. I felt like nobody was on my side. I just walked around the school and I, it seems like no one, nobody knows anything about where I just came from. And I, I did not, I'm sure they do not know anything about Cambodia and what, what just had happened to me and to my brother and sister. My little brother and sister I shared with you earlier. I was suicidal. I wanted to buy guns, you know, uh, um, in New Hampshire. Our home, it's not n near any mall or any store, like 20 miles away. And I ran away from home and I was arrested again. I broke the school windows. I was like a tiger and I, I didn't know why. I cannot communicate. I had a lot of anger and I, I was ready to strike all the time. And I couldn't control myself. They put me in a soccer team and we did very well. And I, you know, they think that it could help me, but I worked really hard. You know, we had, uh, we were state championship three or four years in a row while I'm, I was there and I run faster than anybody else. I want to, I want, I want to have them not to make fun anymore to me. And I worked really hard. So I scored like two or three goals in a game for three or four years on a roll. And all of a sudden the kids will lift, you know, girls start coming around, you know, and uh, they hug me and all that. But I didn't know, not know why I was confused than anything else. I don't know why one, one day I'm nobody and the next day this kid, you know, like because I, was, I play soccer very well. But that, that I, don't want them, I don't want to communicate to them that way. You know, I want to tell them where I came from. Not being, you know, playing soccer and all of these things. So, but... My dad know that I might not survive there. Uh, I was really in a deep depression. And he's, I, I've never seen my dad cry uh, before. After the camp, and then the, he looked at me in the eyes and said, you must share your story with this American people 
if you want them to stop making fun of you. And he looked at me in the eye and say, he worked so hard in his life to bring me here to America and he will not allow me to die here. If I die, he's going to die. My mom's going to die. The whole family going to die with me. I thought, you know, he was kidding. He hugged me and he cried and I pushed him away and I, I felt like I was a bad kid and why he should continue to love me. I, knew, I had never anybody hugging me like that. But he continued, so he, I started uh, to speak out. I, first, I thought that American kid would not want to care of what I say to them, no matter what, because they always busy. American kids, you know, they go to, they love mauling. They go to the mall all the time. And one thing I noticed is they like kissing. You know, they're so busy kissing each other. That's not, I don't know anything about kissing. There's no boyfriend and girlfriend in Cambodia, you know, and, and something totally I don't understand. Uh, but something, something I know that something similar that they, they, they might be a chance that I can communicate with them because I, I noticed that when they go to the mall, they love ice cream. You know, they go and eat ice cream just like I did when I was in Cambodia earlier. So something similar. They like music also. So something, I, I, I took my dad's uh, dad advice and I started to share my story very slowly. I said, I, I will try. Eventually, it took many years, many years. <laughs> I also start playing my music again to them. Not until they know the, the movie called it the Titanic movie, you know, when <laughs> I brought my flute here. So when I play my flute and I don't have to speak about my experiences and some of the kids cry. So I don't know why they cry, just play music. They said, oh, I love your flute. It sounds, it sounds like uh, uh, the movie, you know, the Titanic. So something that they can connect. And for me, the, the flute, again, I play, again, I was be able to connect with the student and connect to my own family, connect, you know, my, my heart. I was living at the daytime in America, but in, at night, I was back in Cambodia. I was confused. And all these years, I didn't even know where my dad or my mom or my family and why I ended up in America in the first place. This time, the music didn't save my life, but it saved my soul. And I didn't go insane. And I know one day that I have to go back to Cambodia. And I began already when, I, when these kids like what I say, they're not, they, they not only listen, but they, 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 give, they start giving me money. <laughs> they give me money. So I know that, that these kids are very kind. When I was wrong, I, I told my dad that I, I think this kid would not care. 
but if they know the story, they they would care. And it it, it so I began to raise money and went back uh, to Cambodia in the in the nineteen nineties. And I tried to find my family with the place where I came from, and I couldn't find anyone. But I found on the street one day. I went to uh, Battambang, where I was born. In the in the late 90s, I I found Master Mac. 23 years, we were separated, and he was cutting hair for the ex Khmer soldier. And uh, he looked at me, and I saw we hugged each other, and also he was smiling. But uh, I can smell he was drinking, he, and he he was drunk, and and uh, he cried, tears coming out of his eyes. And he said, where have you been all these years? I told him America. He just have no idea where America is. But he said, Aunt, please, please find something for me to do. He doesn't want to die drunk. He wanted to teach. He, he thought that I knew what he wants. And I came back to America a few times and think about what he really wants. So I, I start raising money and with these young people and ch children in America, and then I brought it. I brought it back to uh, to to Cambodia. A uh, few 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 trips, and there were few more masters on the street of the capital that had no chance to. They were disoriented. It, they were old and fragile, and most of them were drunk. And these are household name, you know, these masters are household name before the Khmer Rouge. They were the king and the queen of their skill, you know, and no way people treating them that way. So this is how, how Cambodian living art started together with some of my close friends from America, uh, dedicated friends. And we start to match masters and students. And we began classroom like everywhere, you know, I didn't have money to have a place. So uh, we started a, like a school without wall. So anywhere I found the master and I allowed them to teach, uh, the, uh, to teach a younger generation. And um, the first step was to um, preserve and revive uh, and transmit the, the knowledge to the next generation. Now, it's Cambodian Living Art 20th anniversary. And we have come so far, even the kids in our very first classes own their own troupe and business and are creating um, incredible new, uh, new work like music, dance, film, and literature, and visual art, you name it. We are also running a scholarship and fellowship now that in Cambodia I've never heard of before. We stage uh, demonstration and performances and festival. I was, I was just in Siem Reap, one of the province that um, uh, for the rap fest, festival, festival, it was a new traditional music form around Asia. We brought uh, together artists from uh, Vietnam, Thailand, Laos, Myanmar, and Taiwan, Japan, uh, we are hosting it. Our young people, our young musicians are hosting it. Uh, there, when I, uh, my dream, my little dream come closer, 
and closer now when I see this beautiful Laotian girl uh, exchange musical instruments with the Cambodian girls uh, and they play each other instruments. The dream, my dreams, you know, coming closer to my reality that my little secret dream is to, you know, I wish for Cambodian, all Cambodian child to play, carry musical instruments, not guns like I did. And I wish this for the world. I wish this for uh, young people here too. And also I spend now in the program of Cambodian Living Arts, one of the programs that I like the most, like you mentioned, I spend most of my time now with uh, something called the Khmer Magic Music Bus. It's the first Khmer Magic Music Bus in Cambodia, which we are trying to reintroduce Khmer traditional music art form into the country, remote, remote countryside. Uh, when we perform, this is especially, this is children uh, form from, was born from the Khmer Rouge uh, families. You know, their first clapping, they never clap before. They come like a ghost, you know, they, they, they don't know the instruments. They've never touched an instrument, a musical instrument before. So their first clapping, they learn how to clap when we play. And I used to have, uh, when we perform, I used to have a, you know, a, a, a flute and give to the little kids and they, will, they, they touch it and they, they blow it, they run off into the jungle, they blow it and then they were happy. At least they come as a community, at least they, they are sitting with each other and listen to music for the first time in their lives. And I'm sure they will die remember, remembering this time when I offer uh, this to them. In Cambodia, I see how music, how much music can help us to express ourselves and especially to heal me, to heal ourselves, to communicate with each other from different background and different generation. Music connect us between, connect between past and the future and let us understand who we are and where we have come from. I know there are also uh, still conflict and war and children died every day and children still giving guns, even in this region, in this part of the world. And killing of the people also occur in the Middle East. And what can I do as Cambodian? I can, you know, at least even if I cannot play my flute, which I, I could do it in some part of the world. But I could offer to today. I could come when you ask me to come. I could offer my speaking to you, hopefully contribute myself and console you and continue to, to, uh, to connect you how I feel and to learn about Cambodian situation and remind you of what's happening even around us, around this region, that there are wars going on even now, killings going on even now, and offering my playing with you. That's what I can do.
I want to save the whole world, you know, like, like you. I want to do whatever I can to save the world, but I cannot. I have to be in one place at one time, one village at a time with the Khmer Marching Music Bus, and I could find my way to do many other more things. But most important for me is that first step is that I want, I am useful to find out that I am useful. I didn't want to kill myself anymore because I am useful. So that's the first step for me to find way through music. And when I play music every time, like I play to, for you soon, literally playing the flute and singing the smote, I, I was just singing, uh, uh, chanting for you. This is the only, I, I just learned it. I was just learned it. And I wanted to learn my language, uh, Cambodian language through song. I could do it better. I'm very slow. I am very slow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very slow and uh, uh, music, I literally control. I it calms myself down. I really control myself. I can control myself. So um, I would like to, to do the same. I would like before I end and play the flute for you to invite all of you here and also to back to school here, not only have short-term relationship with us, with Cambodian living arts, but to have long-term relationship with Cambodia, I, I don't take a chance anymore. 30 years ago, there were no Cambodian living arts in Cambodia. The politicians were bickering and start bombing, very like that. Half a million tons were dropping bombs. They, they call it a lunch, breakfast, and dinner. They dropped B-52. And no, nobody say anything because they trust the politicians and business people. I don't take the chance anymore. This November, the 40th anniversary of the end of the Khmer Rouge and the 20th anniversary of Cambodian Living Arts, we are hosting a, 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 a kind of a festival that ne never happened before in Cambodia called the Arts for Peace. That's something we can do together. Uh, it costs money. It costs money, a lot of money. We have it already. It's plenty of money around the world. If they spend, if American can spend $700 million a day on war, a day, it makes me cry. It's plenty of money. While I have to cry all the time to make a dollar, how hard it has been for me for these 30 years. But I do it for myself. I do it for my people, I, for my country. I do it for the children of the world so they wouldn't have to go through what I went through. I make sure that happened, that peace will come through music, through healing. I do it for myself, nobody else. I couldn't imagine what I, I didn't do. I would die if I don't do this work. And I'm not going to wait for a politician to hold my hand. Oh, you're a dreamer. You're a musician. Sorry for you. Here, a million dollars for you to start another Cambodian living art. They're not going to do it. They're not going to come and hold your hand. And many of you are very lucky to have school like this. I want to remind you, all of you again, to have a school, to have parents who love you, to have teacher who loves you. They cater you every minute of your day. 
I hope you know that. They are loves. All they want, all they want is that you continue to love, to care about other people, not for them, but for others. They would be happy. And I'm glad we had Pchum Ben in Cambodia, a big celebration to say thank you to masters, to teachers, to parents who give us life. And we should continue that legacy. So I, before I end, I would like to also invite you to come to the festival. We're going to be happy. We're going to have traditional music. We're going to have tens of thousands of young people, masters, uh, you know, young masters that being taught by the older master who have died now one by one. And we have group and organization come together and we have, uh, you know, classical dance, classical music side by side with pops, with, uh, you know, we reintroduce uh, hip hop for the first time. I'm a Cambodian American. What can I say? That's who I am. And I'm proud of it. Using music for peace, not for money, not for war. So I'm proud of it. I know what I'm doing. And uh, please join us in November uh, uh, 14 to November some of you might be going, I I'm, have a feeling, uh, 14 to 24th, 10 days, 10 days. Please join us and support uh, uh, those and be, be solidarity, uh, united with us with that art for peace and, and come. Uh, I uh, find I would like to play for you a lullaby. I have traveled with this flute. Now is my... My weapon now, wherever I go, it's easy to hide also. I put just in the M16 and AK-47, it's hard to hide. But here I can hide it and nobody bother. I mean, in the, at the airport, they say, what is that? What is that? I said, flute, man. Uh, they would recognize if I carried, uh, you know, AK-47, of course. But they say, what is that? What is that? I say, what, what does it look like? It's a flute, so they pick up and they play at the. Uh, I play for them at the airport and all these things. Uh, musical instruments, please. No gun. No gun. And this, I'm going to play a lullaby song that I found out that lullabies uh, is sung everywhere. They have their own lullabies every country in the world. It was also silent during the Khmer Rouge, but now I, I hear mothers are now harvesting rice, start singing this song, particularly song again. So I, again, thank you for choosing to be here today. Thank you. Thank you very much.
You've been listening to a download from the NY Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu/institute.